want for us to do this morning is basically let's open up Romans. I want a experience in the gospel together this morning. This isn't just doctrine that has somehow lost its wow. This is the wow. I love this stuff. I love truth. At a very early age, again, couldn't earn it, didn't deserve it. I was just a kid. God let me know that he was real. So anytime I can get a glimpse or a taste or an understanding of, I love it, just what God did in me. So one of the first things I want us to think about is how many times, and I might have us do this at the end, how many times in chapters one through five are we going to read God, Jesus, Holy Spirit, Gospel? Like if you were to count, like I started counting this morning and just from verses one through seven, I'm not, I, I, I almost like lost track. I'm like, wait, I forgot one. I mean, it is so God, Jesus, Holy Spirit, gospel. Here's what I want to say about that for us just to be aware of. Being a Christian means you have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ alone, by the power of the Holy Spirit, and we are to spread the gospel. That's what being a Christian means. So if in our Christian conversations, literally the words God, Jesus, Holy Spirit, and gospel don't come up on a regular basis, we are not living and speaking the Christian life with one another. Like, we should be hearing those words a lot. So again, pay attention to how Paul is teaching what it means to be a Christian. And it's all about God, Christ, the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, and the gospel, the good news, the message that is the power of Christ for salvation for all who believe. Like, that should be the core of our conversations. That's the hope of our conversations. That's the conviction in our conversations. That's our purpose in all of our conversations as Christians. All right, so Paul says, Paul, a servant of Christ. See, he, that's even how he identifies himself. Called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David. That's his earthly, right? That's his humanness according to the flesh. And was declared to be the son of God. So there's his divinity in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith that's interesting. We're going to unpack that this morning. Obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. So we see here already a reference to what church life, what being a Christian, what being a lover of God is all about. I want to read something for you from a guy named, uh, I've told you about him. I'm, I'm in love with you, Norman T. Wright. <laughs> uh, 
but it's called Simply Christian, Why Christianity Makes Sense. And this is what he says on his chapter about the church, because Paul is writing to the church in Rome. And why is it important that he, he so wants to get this right? Do you sense that? Like, this is thick in language. This is thick in truth. And he's talking about Gentiles, and he's talking about Jews, and he's talking about Abraham, and he's talking about Adam, and he's talking about man, and he's ta- it's just like, wow, there's a lot of reality here that he is bringing them into. So whereas we saw in like Corinth, we were dealing a lot with issues in the church. This is the issue of the church, is understanding what it means to be a Christian and what it means to be a church. Because Rome at that time was the center of the world, basically, the center of the world's power. And everything that was happening in Rome was going to spread out to the rest of the world. You see here Paul's concern, not just for an individual, not just for a church, but his concern is for the nations. You tracking with me? So for him to tell the individual believers of this one church about the gospel so that the name of Jesus could be magnified among the nations, right? That's where he's going with this. And in this church in particular were Jews and Gentiles. So he, didn't, he wanted to make sure there wasn't a Jewish church and a Gentile church that had different laws. He was bringing them together underneath Christ. Okay? Because from this point forward, the gospel was going to go out into the rest of the world and to all nations. And literally we are sitting here today Because it went out well. You have a relationship with Jesus Christ because of this letter that Paul wrote to this church in Rome. And they were faithful with the message. May we be faithful with this message. So that generations after us in all the nations may know and may proclaim and may exalt and be free in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen? So let's get this right, and let's walk in the reality of this. Here's what Norman T. Wright says. He said, according to the early Christians, the church does not exist in order to provide a place where people can pursue their private spiritual agendas and develop their own spiritual potential. Sorry. You want me to read that again? Okay. According to the early Christians, the church does not exist in order to provide a place where people can pursue their private spiritual agendas and develop their own spiritual potential. There's a famous book that starts off with, it's not about you, right? Um, Let me go on. Nor does it exist in order to provide a safe haven in which people can hide from the wicked world and ensure that they themselves arrive safely at an otherworldly destination. Private spiritual growth and ultimate salvation come rather as byproducts of the main central overarching purpose for which God has called and is calling us. This purpose is clearly stated in various places in the New Testament. We see this today with Paul, that through the church, God will announce to the wider world that he is indeed its wise, loving, and just creator. 
that through Jesus he has defeated the powers that corrupt and enslave it, and that by his spirit he is at work to heal and renew it. The church exists, in other words, for what we sometimes call mission, to announce to the world that Jesus is its Lord. This is the good news. And when it's announced, it transforms people and societies. Don't we need to be on mission today? Wow. Mission in its widest as well as its more focused sense is what the church is there for. God intends to put the world to rights. He has dramatically launched this project through Jesus alone. Those who belong to Jesus are called here and now in the power of the Spirit to be agents of putting to right God's purposes. The word mission comes from the Latin for send. As the Father sent me, said Jesus after his resurrection, so I am sending you. Right? We see that several times in Scripture. God's heart from the very beginning has been that we would have a relationship with him and that we would have dominion with him on the earth and that we would bear fruit and multiply. He did that with Adam. He did that with Abraham. We're going to see that in a little bit. He did it again with Jesus. We shall consider presently what that means in practice, but first notice this. From the very beginning in Jesus' own teaching, it has been clear that people who are called to be agents of God's healing love, that's you, putting the world to rights, are called also to be people whose own lives are put to rights by the same healing love. The messengers must model the message. That's why though uh, the reason for God's call of the church is mission, the missionaries, that is all Christians, are themselves defined as people who have themselves been made whole. We must now pause and ask exactly what that means. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning, right? So this is why Paul is writing this letter to the book of Rome. It isn't just about individual believers having a great spiritual private life with God. It's not just about them being safe from the wicked world and having a place to hide. It's actually about them receiving the message in the life of Christ and then going on mission to let the world know about him and setting things that through evil have tipped over and making them right again. We call that justice. And he has equipped us by the gospel to move out in justice and love. So may we go on mission as well as we read the book of, of Romans. So that was his purpose. You will see here, though, in the next part where it talks about discipleship, um, just his longing to be with people. So as we go out on mission, it is that we make disciples. Paul longed to be with them face to face, and I like how it says, um, I long to see you, this is verse 11, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Isn't that beautiful? So it's about the relationships within the church as well. So it's about truth and it's about love. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. Do you hear again that multiplication? As I invest in you, I'm investing in all of those who you will invest in so they can invest in so they can invest in. The Gentiles were basically anybody that's not a Jew. 
So when Paul said, I long to come to you so that everybody in the whole world's faith may be strengthened in Christ. May that be our prayer too. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am, in, I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. And here's the point of the whole book. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why does he have to even address that? We face that too, don't we? But Paul overcame that by his faith in Christ. He said out loud, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Anytime you see the word power of God, it's something that when it is spoken, it changes everything. When Jesus came and walked on this earth and he lived the life we couldn't live and died the death we deserve to die and then rose again, conquering the enemy we couldn't conquer, it changed everything. And so when we speak that truth, it should change something inside of us. It should change something in our families, in our neighborhood, in our world. It's the only way that true justice and everlasting life is going to come to anybody in the world, to all cultures. It is the power of God for salvation for anyone who believes. Justice starts with God. Is it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written. And here is the theme of Romans. The righteous, and we're going to define in a moment. I'm queuing you guys up for the video here in just a second. The righteous video. Um, the righteous, what does that mean? Shall live. It doesn't say just shall think doesn't say shall feel. It says the righteous shall live by faith. What is faith? The righteous shall live by faith. That's the point of our whole morning. So let's dig into what righteousness, what righteousness is. I'm going to watch a quick video. This is from Got Questions. What is righteousness? We're going to answer that question. Dictionaries define righteousness as behavior that is morally justifiable or right. Such behavior is characterized by accepted standards of morality, justice, virtue, or uprightness. The Bible standard of human righteousness is God's own perfection in every attribute, every attitude, every behavior, and every word. Thus, God's laws, as given in the Bible, both describe his own character and constitute the plumb line by which he measures human righteousness. The Greek New Testament word for righteousness primarily describes conduct in relation to others, especially with regards to the rights of others in business, legal matters, and beginning with relationship to God. It is contrasted with wickedness, the conduct of the one who, out of gross self-centeredness, neither reveres God nor respects man. The Bible describes the righteous person as just or right, holding to God and trusting in Him. The bad news is that true and perfect righteousness is not possible for man to attain on his own. The standard is simply too high. The good news is that true righteousness is possible for mankind, but only through the cleansing of sin by Jesus Christ and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. 
We have no ability to achieve righteousness in and of ourselves, but Christians possess the righteousness of Christ because God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is an amazing truth. On the cross, Jesus exchanged our sin for his perfect righteousness so that we can one day stand before God and he will not see our sin, but the holy righteousness of the Lord Jesus. This means that we are made righteous in the sight of God. That is, we are accepted as righteous and treated as righteous by God on account of what the Lord Jesus has done. He was made sin, we are made righteousness. On the cross, Jesus was treated as if he were a sinner, though he was perfectly holy and pure. And we are treated as if we were righteous, though we are defiled and depraved. On account of what the Lord Jesus has endured on our behalf, we are treated as if we had entirely fulfilled the law of God and had never become exposed to its penalty. We have received this precious gift of righteousness from the God of all mercy and grace. That answers the question, what is righteousness? Research this question further on our website, gotquestions.org. Be sure and click subscribe. <laughs> okay. Um, so I, I toyed with when to show that. So that gave us some of the hope. But I wanted to introduce us to what righteousness is. Um, and this is how he defined it. And so I'm going to go a little bit slower. You might write this down. Righteousness is God's own perfection in every attribute. Okay, we could just stop there and be blown away, right? In every attribute, every attitude, every behavior, and every word. And this is the plumb line by which he measures human righteousness. I don't think I've had a moment where I have been. Moment much less an hour, an afternoon, a day, a week, a month, a year, a life. I don't think I've had a moment where I've had a perfect attribute, every attribute, every attitude, every behavior, and every word. I don't. And the reality is none of us do. So let's unpack what that is all about. Romans chapter 1, uh, we're going to go ahead and unpack unpack the character of God and the sinfulness of man. So the first thing about the character of God that we see is that he is righteous, right? He is, again, can we kind of say this together? Perfect in every attribute, every attitude, every behavior, and every word. That's God. That's the character of God. He is holy. He is so other than us. So Kristen's going to help me today. Part of the reason um, she and I met together on Monday, when we saw that definition, we were so convicted, we started laughing. We were sitting on the floor, and we were just like, okay. Like, that's just so ridiculously what I'm not. <laughs> um, so she's going to help us kind of write this out, process this out a little bit. Um, make sure that I go slow and we don't ramble through this because this is really insightful stuff if we discipline our minds now to kind of dig into this. You guys ready to renew our minds? That's what we're going to do this morning. All right. 
So the first thing he says is, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of man. So our unrighteousness reveals that we are separated from God, and our separation and our sin deserves wrath. He unpacks that a little bit. He says, for what can be known about God is plain to them. Does that wow anybody? What we are reading is true. So what can be known about God is plain to all people. He has designed it so. Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in all the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. We are without excuse. I am without excuse. God has clearly revealed himself, especially to those of us who have the word of God. He has clearly revealed himself to us. And I have clearly perceived it. So I am without excuse. For although they knew God, it is describing here that all people know God. Even though they knew God, see, evidently knowledge of God does not save us. Even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. What do you do with your knowledge of God? So yes, we are talking about the world, but I do not want us sitting here this morning going, oh, that's why they are so bad and that's why the world is so wicked. I know the Mueller report is being released this morning. The wickedness of man. And we're going to sit in our houses and we're going to say how wicked politics is. Both sides and the media. And we're going to sit in judgment over them. We're going to say they need Jesus. And I would say to us this morning, what are you doing with what God has revealed to you? We are still sinning against God because we're not living in the full realities and the clear perceptions that he has given us. So before we rush and just judge them, let's make sure we walk in the realities of this for us. Next week, you're going to read about the flesh. This describes the flesh. This is our flesh. We perceive things about God. We know things about God. And yet we do not worship him or give thanks to him. Let's keep going. But we become... They became futile in their thinking, and their foolish, foolish hearts were darkened. That's why you're going to read in the books to the churches ahead of time, it's going to say, be renewed in your mind. We still struggle with futile thinking. Why in the world do we struggle so much with believing that God loves us? Why do we struggle so much with prayer? Why do we struggle so much in thinking that God would want to spend time with us? Why do we not share the gospel? Futile thinking and darkened hearts. That's our flesh.
that's the world we live in. But look at what we do. Page 22, or verse 22. Claiming to be wise, we become fools, and we exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds and animals, and creeping things. Are you more alive to creation? Are you more alive to people than you are alive to God? Christ has made a way for us to be fully alive to God. Will we transform our thinking and let him change our hearts? It says, therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because, and this is just wild, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. How many times a day do I do that? When I say, I have a hard time believing God loves me, I am believing a lie more than I'm believing God. When I have a moment to love someone, but it would be difficult, and I choose to protect myself in the name of, and I might step on some toes right now, and I know what the guys are saying in the book, but we often misunderstand what they're saying, but in the name of boundaries, we don't love people well. Futile thinking, hardened hearts. We're exchanging the truth of the power of the gospel and the power of God's love for self-protection, for self-preservation. But the world definitely does that. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. I read somewhere this week that you become what you worship. And I think this is a huge statement. We become what we worship. So if mankind is not worshiping God, but worshiping something less than God, then they are experiencing humanity less than what God intends for us to. And that's what we're going to see in chapter 5, is that through Christ Jesus, we're not just restored to the humanity we had in Adam, we're restored to this new creation in Christ. But apart from Christ, we are a humanity much less than what God intended. Do we not see that all around us? Do we not experience that in ourselves? Ladies, that's called sin. And our world does not like to talk about sin. And actually, Christians don't like to talk about sin. Why? Because we think that we're judging. But we're going to read in a minute that we know God's love for us because while we were sinners, Christ died for us. So if we don't acknowledge our sin, how are we ever going to experience the depth of God's love for us? Do you understand what I'm saying? We'll get to that in a minute. And I'm going to admit, verse 28. And they did not see fit to acknowledge God. Wow. <laughs> wow, Rhonda. When do I not see fit to acknowledge God? When do we? When does the world? Do you see God acknowledged in the world? <laughs> no way, Jose. 
So it says that God gave them up to a debased mind. And again, debased means reduced in quality or value. It's not the mind God intended for us to have. He gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. Verse 32, though they know God's righteous decree, those who practice such things, um, verse 32, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. When I read that, I thought, wow. God is saying even that in humanity, the way that he has revealed himself, that they are aware not only of who God is, but they're aware of the way that they live in relationship with him, that they deserve to die. They're aware of that. They know that. They not only do... Um, they not only do them, these unrighteous acts, but they also, and here's an interesting thing, they give approval to those who practice them. Isn't that what we are asked to do in our day and time? Not only of what the world does, but what our brothers and sisters are doing in Christ. Aren't we asked, approve of me? God loves us, but he does not approve of our sin. Why? Because it separates us from his love and his life and his victory and his glory. And it separates us from justice. There's no justice in the world because men are denying God. God is the source of justice. Social justice that demands that I approve of whatever you think and feel is not justice. I looked up this week, but give approval to those who practice them. It says, not acknowledging that something is not perfect, but it is satisfactory, adequate, and tolerable. That is our sin. Our sin isn't just when we do certain things or don't do certain things. Do you see how he's describing our sin? Is what do we do with our knowledge and understanding of God? What do we do with our futile thinking and our hardened hearts? What do we do with when we should worship and we should love one another and speak the truth to one another. Instead, we accept and we approve of unrighteousness. That's sin. That's what he's describing as the sin of the Gentiles. And so he says, and again, this passage, it talks about homosexuality, which is part of the sin that he's describing. It's not a specific um, Thou shalt not commit this sin. Thou shalt not be homosexual. What he's saying is sin so affects our mind and our hearts that even our male and femaleness, even our bodies, everything that we know about the world is corrupted. Including us. We are all futile in our thinking and hardened in our hearts, but apart from God. What do we do with our worship? What do we do with our gratitude? What is it that we long for? What is it that we approve of? What is it that God has revealed to us? All right. So that's the Gentile sinfulness of man. That's chapter one. Chapter two goes into basically... Now he's going to address the Jews in the church. 
He's going to say, ah, you people who God gave you the law and had a special relationship with, you act so blessed because you have the law. But yet, you're doing exactly the same thing. Your minds, too, are futile, and your hearts, too, are futile. What are some of the things, Kristen, we want to go ahead and put up there? You got the list that we list out? Let's just go ahead and list those out. Okay. Judge, but practice the very same things. We judge others, but we practice the very same things. So we're judging others for their sin, and yet we are sinning as well. That is from verse 4. They didn't believe that they sinned. So it says that the riches of God's kindness, forbearance, and patience um, were basically not, did not lead them to repentance. I heard, as she's writing up the next one, there was an illustration of this. Is like God came to the Israelites and gave them the law. It was supposed to be their message for them as a nation to the rest of the world so the rest of the world can see the holiness of God and have a relationship with him. It's like a postman that has been given the most special package in the whole wide world. What is the postman's job? Deliver the package! But it's like the postman said, this is a very special package, and it makes me feel very special to be carrying it, so I'm going to keep it because it makes me feel very special. Don't those of us who are born... I would say, more moral. So we might read chapter 1 and go, oh, yeah, that's the rest of the world. But I'm a very moral person. And I hear it a lot when people say, we are so blessed to live in Carmel Valley. And we are so blessed to live in America. Like God has given us this special package. What are we doing with it? One of the first things Jesus said was, blessed are those who realize their need for God. That's where blessedness starts. There is no blessedness apart from God, even though you have a special package. That's what he's saying to the Jews. That's what he's saying to us. Morality, apart from God, is still unrighteousness. Right? Yeah. Compared to the righteousness of God. What do we got next there? Yeah, so that's verse 8 in chapter 2. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but they obey unrighteousness. It says there will be wrath and fury. And then I think the next part that we came up with was uh, verses 17 through 24, where it actually talks about, um, yeah, self-righteousness. Basically, you feel like you're here to bless others. You're to, you yourself are to guide, be a guide to the blind. You're a light to those who are in darkness. You're an instructor of the foolish. You're a teacher of children. It says, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? All right, so again, there's the morality and the self-righteousness that God condemns. And that can be summed up in verse 29 with, they sought praise from man and not from God. And kind of the last one that we came up with for the Jews was actually in the next chapter, verse 20, where it says, For by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So the idea that we wrote out there is that they think they can earn God's favor. 
So anybody that tells you basically, I know I'm going to heaven because I'm a good person. I mean, look at the wickedness in the world. They basically point toward chapter one and say, hey, I'm not like that. I'm a moral person. So why would God? And it's very difficult. I know some precious people who are even kinder than some Christians that I know. But they reject Jesus. Like Jesus has been shared with them. Like they won't step foot in a church. They want nothing to do with God, but they are very kind and loving toward others. We cannot work our way into favor with God. We are still in unrighteousness. God alone is perfect in every attribute, in every attitude, in every action, and in every word, and he is the standard by which we are judged because it is to have a relationship with him. He is holy, and to be in his presence, we must be made holy. What I want us to do now for a moment is open up your Steps to Freedom in Christ, this book or this um, copy that you got. I know some of you came Sunday night. This is what we prayed through for ourselves and our community and spiritual warfare. Um, But I wanted to bring this to us to help make this a little bit personal and to kind of give you a moment. So if you'll turn to um, page 15. Well, first, let's look at page one. I'm going to read this first paragraph out loud, and then together we will read what's in bold, and then I'm going to give you a moment to go through the rest of it and have some time with God. All right? So pride, I'm, I'm going out of order with this. That is okay, but this is a beautiful um, package. It's very concise. Like there's a 10-week study that has been used on this that you can study, but this is the core of it. I have used this individually with folks, helping them walk in freedom and life with Christ. It's a very powerful tool. I'm using it just for a few things, but it's a, it's a great tool um, in your personal walk with God. And you with me or with another leader can also walk through it, or you can walk through it with a small group as well, or on your own. But we're going to use this this morning. Pride comes before a fall, but God gives grace to the humble. Humility is confidence properly placed in God. Did any of what we read this morning show anything of anybody putting confidence in God? No, it's quite the opposite, right? They were confident in themselves. They knew about God. They had opportunities to be confident in God, but they suppressed the truth about God. They believed lies instead. They didn't worship him or give thanks. That's what they did with God. So that is pride. Humility is confidence properly placed in God, and we are instructed to put no confidence in the flesh. You're going to read about that next week a little bit more, so hopefully this will help you in reading and applying for next week. We are to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Proverbs 3, 5 through 7 urges us to trust in the Lord with all our hearts versus our darkened hearts, right? Trust in the Lord with all our hearts, not to lean on our own understanding instead of our futile thinking. Use the following prayer to ask God for guidance. Let's read this together. Dear Heavenly Father, you have said that pride goes before destruction and an arrogant spirit before stumbling. 
I confess that I have focused on my own needs and desires and not those of others. I have not always denied myself, picked up my cross daily, and followed you. I have relied on my own strength and resources instead of resting in yours. I have placed my will before yours and centered my life around myself instead of you. I confess my pride and selfishness and pray that all ground gained in my life by the enemies of the Lord Jesus Christ would be canceled as I repent and overcome these sinful flesh patterns. I choose to rely upon the Holy Spirit's power and guidance so that I will do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. With humility of mind, I choose to regard others as more important than myself. I acknowledge you as my Lord and confess that apart from you, I can do nothing of lasting significance. Please examine my heart and show me the specific ways I have lived my life in pride. In the gentle and humble name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. So take some time and pray through the list below, and then use the prayer at the end to confess any sins of pride the Lord brings to mind. So why don't we read this prayer together? So, dear Heavenly Father, I agree I have been proud. Thank you for your forgiveness. I choose to humble myself before you and others. I choose to place all my confidence in you and put no confidence in my flesh. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. One thing that is true about this is that becoming a humble person is going to take us the rest of our life. But there has to be an initial unlocking for the process to begin. So every now and then, this is called repentance. And every now and then when you're convicted of pride, repent. And then thank God that you're forgiven. That's the power of the gospel, is that Jesus changes everything like that through his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Like that. So even in you, when you confess that sin... Like that, the door is open to God in a, relation, in a fellowship with him. You are always in Christ. If he is your Savior and Lord, you are always secure in Christ. But to have that wide open door of fellowship with him, the gospel is what saved you, and it's what continues to save you. It's what you stand. It's your victory. It's your hope. It's the glory of God, and it is the power of God for continual salvation. It changes everything like that. So just to kind of summarize, um, then this board, we would summarize it by saying, and this is what Paul's trying to say, none are righteous. Gentile, Jew, none. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So it's true about everybody. It's true about you. It's true about me. It's true about the whole world. It's true about anybody who was ever born. Because of Adam, we'll see that in chapter 5. So no one is righteous. 
Not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. I hear sometimes people, we talk in some of the conversation we have, how could I be worthy of God doing this for me? That's the point of God's love, is that we aren't. That's the point of God's love. We're going to see that in a minute. All have turned aside. Together, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's reality. And do we see it everywhere, including inside ourselves? Just think of the times that you wanted to do something that was right and you just couldn't get there. Just think of the relationships that you wanted to have and yet you've hurt the very people that you want to love. This truth runs right, right through us as well. And I love verse 21. What are those first two words? But now. But now. Do you see how exciting it gets? I mean, again, we don't like talking about the sinfulness of man, but it, if we don't, we miss out on the love and the excitement and the justice and the mercy of God that are such rich truths for us. To, it's, we miss out on the joy. Isn't that interesting? If we don't understand sin and acknowledge that, we miss out on peace and joy and love, the very things that we're longing for. It's repentance that brings those things. It's fullness of the Holy Spirit through the power of the gospel that brings us those things, period. And if we don't acknowledge our sin, we will not ever experience the wow of those other things. Especially faith, which is what he goes into talking about. But now, the righteousness of God, which that is Jesus. So again, when we're, if we're looking at the, the gospel threads, and you see that he lived the life we couldn't live, basically Jesus was perfect in every attribute, in every attitude, in every action, and in every word. He was the righteousness of God. He did what no other human being had ever been able to do. And Paul goes into, which we're not going to this morning, but he goes into, and Jesus doing that was actually God being faithful to the law and to the Jews because Jesus was Jewish. He was the king that came from the lineage of David. So everything that God has done has been fair and right and true, right? So he kind of goes into a lot of that. We're not going to go there this morning, but if you want to talk about that, we can. But everything God has done or has ever promised and every covenant he has ever made, he has kept in Christ Jesus. Jesus is the righteousness of God. Nothing else. I don't bring anything to that. That is Father, Son, Holy Spirit, period. I, add no, I can add nothing to that. Nothing. Nothing. 
Nothing. Nothing. I feel like I need to say that over and over again and almost like break these spiritual bondage. I feel like people in our community, including myself, feel like we can add something to God. There's something special about me. There's something unique about me. I need to know my gifting. I need to know my calling. I need to, because I need to add that to the righteousness of God. Really? No. Let us forsake pride and enjoy the wow of God. And you know what we'll find when we do that? Life becomes pretty special. That's the interesting thing. Life can become really special. Because God is so special. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested. And here's what I was talking Apart from the law. Our moral acts, our obedience, do not add to the righteousness of God. He's determined that it wouldn't be so. He gets all the glory. There is nothing for us to boast in. And the righteousness of God is now through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Through Jesus, we are declared righteous. So much more than special, so much more than gifted, so much more than purposeful, intentional, identity. What are all the words that are thrown out there? In Christ Jesus, we are declared righteous, perfect. In every attribute, not my own, but in God's, perfect in every attribute, perfect in every action, perfect in every attitude, and perfect in every word. That's how God sees us. And actually, Krista and I are memorizing a passage together that goes along with women being a gentle and quiet spirit. Okay, I'm going to totally chase a rabbit right now. Isn't that what they say, chase a rabbit? I'm going for it. So yesterday on the news, someone was asked, a woman was asked, what word would you like to hear most said by women and women in our day and in our culture? What word would you, that's what was asked of this person. Does anybody, did anybody see that besides me? And it was this gorgeous woman said, F you. She thinks that's what women ought to be saying more and more in our culture. F you. And I get, you guys, do we get it? It has not been easy being a woman. It has had its unique challenges. But, and I'm not going to chase this totally, but why are we laughing? Did I say something funny? Sorry, I'm going off-road, which is dangerous. Um, but in 1 Peter 2... And this is what I mean by the righteousness of Christ. For this um, is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. And then it goes into verse 21. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you. This is the powerful part. 
leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself, here's the huge part, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. What do we expect God's healing and Christ's righteousness to do for us? We are to live to righteousness and dead to sin. That's the power of through Christ we are declared righteous. Now we need to live toward righteousness and justice and love, proclaiming the power of the gospel as we go because it is Christ that declares us righteous. And it is Christ who was an example that we should follow. First Peter says. And then it specifically goes into in the same way, and then it talks about a woman having a gentle and quiet spirit. Like that's an application <laughs> of the gospel, isn't it? Anybody in here have naturally a gentle and quiet spirit, or do most people have the tendency to say F you? In their hearts, at times, that's what dwells within us. But we are dead to that, and we are alive to righteousness. So even when there's mistreatment going on, we can have a gentle and quiet spirit and move out in the power of God in those situations. That's a, whole, like that's a total rabbit that might be... I wish we, July 4th is when we would discuss that passage. Most people, we're not going to be meeting. So anyway, I think it's an amazing passage. Okay. The thing about Abraham, just to, so faith, Denise and I were chatting the other day, and we were talking about Abraham, and you go, okay, so when God came and made that covenant with Abraham, the covenant of faith, like the reason God chose Abraham was because there was something right about him. We don't know that. It, does, it literally doesn't say that. It doesn't say that. Which is amazing, right? Denise is like tracking with me. Genesis 12, if you look at that, that's when he came to Abraham. I just want us to real quickly, again, because I still think Americans and people in our community that are strong and educated and um, healthy and relational, socially, we think that there is still something that we add. But really, when it talks about Abraham... It basically says, yeah, he came here and he went with his father and they lived in Haran. And it said, now the Lord said to Abram. God did not appear to Abraham because Abraham was just righteous or anything on his own. He was just a man. Wouldn't that be freeing for us, like, to totally reject that? Like, it's all about Christ. It's all about God's beauty. It's all about God's love. It's all about God's justice. And we get to be part of it, but we so still start with ourselves. But there was nothing in Abraham that would make God start with him. He was just a guy. That God said, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that... I will show you. 
I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whom dishonor, and I will. I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, if you go. That, it's that simple. He appeared, appeared to just a guy and said that. Verse 4, so Abraham went as the Lord told him. It's that simple. We, in our futile thinking and hard hearts, make it so hard. This world makes it so hard. They would rather make it hard and they would rather it be anxious and fearful world than just to say, you know what, God, that you have revealed yourself to me plainly in all the creation that I've seen, so I turn and I trust you just like Abraham did. We would rather make it hard and scary and anxious instead of peaceful and quiet with God. That's what Paul is saying. And it's incredible that he's saying basically, so anyone, Jews and Gentiles, who has faith like that, who just believes what God says and convinced that God can do what he will do and follows, that faith is what saves someone, period. We make it way too hard. It is hard because our futile mind and our darkened hearts, but that's the only place that it's hard. That's why we need to renew our mind. But that's the beauty of the story with Abraham. I made you a father, again, there it is again, of many nations. He called Abraham because he wanted him to take his faith in God to the nations. God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. He had no belief, made him, no belief made him waver concerning the promise of God. Can you say that about yourself? No unbelief makes you waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced, fully convinced. That's what faith is. Fully convinced that God is able to do what he has promised. That's why faith was counted to him as righteousness. And I love this, verse 23. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Wow. If we believe that, right? That's the gospel. If we believed in God who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord and who has delivered us up from our sins and trespasses and raised us up for our justification that we are made right with God, we're saved. That's our faith. And that's the faith that we continue to walk in. And now we say, I am dead to sin and I'm alive to righteousness. And we live life pursuing those things. From the very beginning, it's about... Do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with God. And he has provided a way for us to do that through Jesus, right? Therefore, fully convinced. So the word confident, 
which we kind of had in our confession time. Con means with, fidelis means faith. Pretty cool, right? With faith, confidence. Paul is going to instruct in another letter not to put any confidence in our flesh, but our confidence is in God. We are fully convinced that God is who he says he is and that God will do what he says he will do, right? And this whole passage about Adam and Christ is that when we are convinced that we are right with God and we are made righteous and we are justified. Justified means no longer guilty. The judge looks at the righteousness of Christ on our behalf and says to us, even though we deserve sin and death, since you believe in my son, I am going to justly declare you righteous through Christ. Our sin was imputed, that's the word, given to him as if it was his on the cross. So as you face Good Friday tomorrow, and as you face Easter, all your sin, how you fall short in your attributes, in your attitudes, in every action and word, that was put on Christ as if it was his. And his perfectness in every attribute, every action, every attitude, and every word was put on you. And God justly says, you are forgiven. You are made right with me. Now confidently walk with me through Christ. And in chapter 5, it's interesting that he goes back to Adam and basically says so much more. So it's not just that our sins are forgiven and where Adam just, humanity fell apart, was corrupted. There's nothing in us apart from God that is worthy of anything from God. It, we are broken. And again, without excuse, because God has revealed himself to us. But we exchanged truth about him for lies, and we didn't worship him, we, we didn't thank him. And there was unrighteousness in us. But in Christ now, there's a whole new creation. He goes back to creation. And he's basically saying, yeah, that was completely broken. That's completely unrighteous. And I'm not going to just like super glue it back together and duct tape it around and kind of put you back together. Through Jesus, I'm doing something completely new. A whole new humanity. Adam and Eve did not have the Holy Spirit dwelling within them. Adam and Eve did not know that God was a self-sacrificing God. There are some things that we know about God they didn't know. They had peace with God, but they didn't have this intimate presence of God literally living inside of them. Jesus is inside of us, his righteousness. And when we say no to sin and we say yes to his righteousness, then we move out into our world. We are literally taking the power of God and the righteousness of God and the justice of God into the world. 
And at the end of the time, when we stand before God, he will welcome us as his child, but he will say, well done. Not well planned, not well hoped for, not well thought through. Well done. There are some things to be done justly and with love and with the gospel going forth that Christ has been poured into our hearts for. And I love that when we mention that, right? At the end of five, this is true. That Christ's love has been poured out into our hearts. So when we struggle with knowing that God loves us, what's the problem? That's something to ask God. Because in Christ, his love not only is something that we can understand, but it's something that has been poured the other day when I was thinking of port, I was thinking of molasses, just like coating my whole heart. The love of God has been poured into our hearts. Do we live that way? I mean, that would, I would live more boldly that way. I wouldn't fear the rejection of man. That's why we're not ashamed of the gospel, because his love has been poured into our hearts. And it is a gift, and it is a grace, and it is a gift, and it is so much more. So much more. That's what life in the new Adam, the new Christ, gives us. It's a whole new thing. And actually, next week is when we're going to look more at what is that about. That's chapters 6 through 8. But today really takes us to this place of you have been made right with God because of all that Christ has done. And it's all a gift. It's by grace. So could you guys cue that? And then I'm going to have us look at another thing in our book to end our time. What is the grace of God? We're going to answer that question. Grace is a constant theme in the Bible, and it culminates in the New Testament with the coming of Jesus. The word translated grace in the New Testament comes from the Greek word charis, which means favor, blessing, or kindness. We can all extend grace to others, but when the word grace is used in connection with God, it takes on a more powerful meaning. Grace is God choosing to bless us rather than curse us as our sin deserves. It is his benevolence to the undeserving. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you are saved through faith and that not of yourselves. The only way any of us can enter into a relationship with God is through his grace toward us. Grace began in the Garden of Eden when God killed an animal to cover the sin of Adam and Eve. He could have killed the first humans right then for their disobedience, but rather than destroy them, he chose to make a way for them to be right with him. That pattern of grace continued throughout the Old Testament when God instituted blood sacrifices as a means to atone for sinful men. It was not the physical blood of those sacrifices, per se, that cleansed sinners. It was the grace of God that forgave those who trusted in him. Sinful men showed their faith by offering the sacrifices that God required. The Apostle Paul began many of his letters with the phrase, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. God is the instigator of grace, and it is from him that all grace flows. God shows both mercy and grace, but they are not the same. Mercy withholds a punishment we deserve. Grace gives a blessing we don't deserve. In mercy, God chose to cancel our sin debt by sacrificing his perfect son in our place. 
but he goes even further than mercy and extends grace to his enemies. He offers us forgiveness, reconciliation, abundant life, eternal treasure, his Holy Spirit, and a place in heaven with him someday when we accept his offer and place our faith in his sacrifice. Grace is God giving the greatest treasure to the least deserving, which is every one of us. And that answers the question, what is the grace of God? Research this question further on our website, gotquestions.org. Right, so that's the point of grace is that we were undeserving, and yet he gives all of himself to us. That's the point of grace. Um, kind of a summary of chapter 5 is what God demonstrates his love toward us and that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. God loves us. And it says in Romans 1, but we have exchanged and we still do the truth about God for a lie. So I want you to open up your book to page 13. And I want you to take some time um, To read through these and basically when in our sin we exchange truth about God for a lie, I want us right now, you individually walking through this, exchange lies about God for truth. If you wanted to, like in your time alone with God, there are tons of verses there. You could look up those verses and meditate on those that kind of jump out at you. But do you see how we renounce lies and we believe truth? We don't want to be people that renounce truth. That's called living according to your flesh. You're going to read about that next week. We want to be alive to God through the Holy Spirit. You'll read about that next week. But this week, 1 through 5, is all about how we sin. We fall short of the glory and the righteousness of God, every single person. But while we were still sinners, Christ died for us through his perfect life, that was his righteousness, through his death, that's the shedding of his blood as a sacrifice for our sins. Through his resurrection, he is Lord. And we are now declared righteous and dead to sin and alive to God. You in Christ have been made right with God. You have a relationship with God in Christ, period. I hope this week there's something, sometimes it's maybe just one degree different when we put our faith in that. For the rest of our days, we're going to get deeper insight into what that means. And may we allow the shift to happen in our hearts, hearts and in our minds and then through our life. Because then Jesus said, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. And he didn't say, so enjoy this personal relationship with God. Or hide away from the rest of the world until I come back. He said, all authority has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything that I have said to you, and surely I will be with you always to the very end of the age. We'll get into that in the rest of Romans. But for this morning, we have been made right with God through Jesus Christ. So how I want us to end this time 
I mean, it's kind of a wow, right? We go from, it got really quiet in the room when we were on this board. And then I got all excited, sorry. She was very organized behind me, but I was chasing all kind of rabbits and stuff. This is such a wow. It's such a wow that while we were sinners, this is what Christ accomplished for us. So let's read on page 10 our statements of truth. Actually, let's start with page 1, and then we'll go to page 10, and that'll be how we end our time together. So this is, instead of praying, we're going to declare truth. And it all starts with a relationship with God. So there are many ways to pray to Jesus to be the Lord and Savior of your life. This is just one example, but it's a good one. So see where it says, Dear Heavenly Father, on page one? Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for sending Jesus to die on the cross for my sins. I acknowledge that I have sinned and that I cannot save myself. I believe that Jesus came to give me life, and by faith, I now choose to receive you into my life as my Lord and Savior. May the power of your indwelling presence enable me to be the person you created me to be. I pray that you would grant me repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, so that I can experience freedom in Christ and be transformed by the renewing of my mind. In Jesus' precious name I pray. Amen. Now, based upon that, these are our statements of truth, page 10. You know, before I do this, I want to point something out real quick. Page 23. To see how it says in Christ on page 23, and we're going to go back to 10 in a minute. But on 23, I know a lot of people who they love this because they want to jump. And again, it's our futile mind and our hardened hearts. We want to jump from this blackboard to being special to God. I am God's child. I am Christ's friends. I have been justified. There are a lot of people in the world who believe that without believing that Jesus is their Savior and Lord. It's just not true. We have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We need a Savior. We cannot save ourselves. So if you read this, who I am, in Christ, alone, by faith alone, nothing of ourselves. We are far from God alone, right? So this is by those who have been justified by the death, life, burial, and resurrection of Christ. But having said that, this is who you are in Christ, right? Yeah, so, okay, statements of truth, page 10, and we'll end this will be our declaration prayer. I recognize that there is only one true and living God who exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is worthy of all honor, praise, and glory as the one who made all things and holds all things together. Okay, hold on. Right now you could take that and pray that for our community. That's what we did Sunday night. This is where our community is. If they're not in Christ... Oh, that they would, so you would pray, Father, would you allow my neighbors in our community to recognize that you are the only true and living God? See how you can turn that into a prayer? Okay. Number two, I recognize that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us. 
I believe that he came to destroy the works of the devil and that he disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public display of them, having triumphed over them. I believe that God demonstrated his own love for me and that while I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. I believe that he has delivered me from the domain of darkness and transformed me to his kingdom, and in him I have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. I believe that I am now a child of God and that I am seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. I believe that I was saved by the grace of God through faith and that it was a gift and not a result of any works on my part. I choose to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. I put no confidence in the flesh, for the weapons of warfare are not of the flesh, but are divinely powerful for the destruction of strongholds. I put on the full armor of God, and I resolve to stand firm in my faith and resist the evil one. I believe that apart from Christ, I can do nothing, so I declare my complete dependence on him. I choose to abide in Christ in order to bear much fruit and glorify my Father. I announce to Satan that Jesus is my Lord, and I reject any and all counterfeit gifts or works of Satan in my life. I believe that the truth will set me free and that Jesus is the truth. If he sets me free, I will be free indeed. I recognize that walking in the light is the only path of true fellowship with God and man. Therefore, I stand against all of Satan's deception by taking every thought captive in obedience to Christ. I declare that the Bible is the only authoritative standard for truth and life. I choose to present my body to God as a living and holy sacrifice and the members of my body as instruments of righteousness. I choose to renew my mind by the living word of God in order that I may prove that the will of God is good, acceptable, and perfect. I put off the old self with its evil practices and put on the new self. I declare myself to be a new creation in Christ. By faith, I choose to be filled with the Spirit so that I can be guided into all truth. I choose to walk by the Spirit so that I will not carry out the desires of the flesh. I renounce all selfish goals and choose the ultimate goal of love. I choose to obey the two greatest commandments, to love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love my neighbor as myself. I believe that the Lord Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth, and he is the head over all rule and authority. I am complete in him. I believe that Satan and his demons are subject to me in Christ, since I am a member of Christ's body. Therefore, I obey the command to submit to God and resist the devil and I command Satan in the name of Jesus Christ to leave my presence. Amen. <laughs> May it be so. May we live this out. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
enjoy reading 6 through 8. We kind of prayed through some of that just now. So next week we'll kind of process 6 through 8, and then in our groups we'll discuss 1 through 8, basically. Because that 1 through 8 is pretty much the whole gospel. So we'll discuss 1 through 8 next week.